You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Book of John, chapter 6. We'll read verses 37 through verse 47. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now to your word, and it is our desire that we may hear your voice in the pages of Scripture, beyond the voice of a mere man, beyond the traditions of our own thinking, that we may see Jesus in all of his glory and see his word for what it is in truth. We pray that you would conform our thinking and our hearts to your word, make us obedient thereto, that you might be glorified through us. O Spirit of God, be our teacher, and may your word be our guide. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, somebody asked me, did you pick the Gospel of John to preach through? It's now almost two years ago. Did you choose the Gospel of John because of what is taught in chapter 6? In other words, there is in chapter 6 this teaching on the sovereignty of God and salvation and election and the purpose of the atonement and the security of the believer and the drawing of the Father and man's inability did you pick the Gospel of John because of what is in John chapter 6? And those doctrines are there in John chapter 6. They're not just in John chapter 6. We find them elsewhere in the Gospel of John as well, like in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 7 and 8 and 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 for certain, 18, 19, 20, and 21. So they do appear in the Gospel of John here and there. But that's not why I chose the Gospel of John. It wasn't because of what's taught in chapter 6, which is reaffirmed again in chapter 8, and then in chapter 10, and certainly in verse chapter 17. It's not for any of those reasons. I chose the Gospel of John because of all of the Gospels, the Gospel of John is the most Trinitarian, the most Trinitarian of the Gospels. So I chose the Gospel of John because the main theme is, though the sovereignty of God is there, the main theme is not the doctrines of grace or the doctrine of divine sovereignty or the security of the believer. Those are there, but that's not the main theme. The main theme is the work of the triune God in our salvation. And I think Christians today need to get to know the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is unfolded in John like you do not find it unfolded in any of the other Gospels. You see the deity of Christ mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in John, it seems that that is the facet of the Lord Jesus Christ that John particularly zeroes in on. So I chose the Gospel of John because I wanted to immerse us in Trinitarian theology Trinitarian texts, and Trinitarian preaching for a long period of time. That's why I chose the Gospel of John. 
And John is a very Trinitarian book. The deity of Christ is on full display. We saw it in John chapter 5, where Jesus said, to, in answer to the objections that he was healing on the Sabbath, he said to the Jews, to the Pharisees, I can do anything I want on the Sabbath because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm equal with the Father. And being equal with the Father, I can treat the Sabbath however I want to treat the Sabbath. It's my Sabbath to do with as I please. And the Father is working till now, and I am working, and I do everything that the Father does on the Sabbath. And Jesus claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. And they went on to say that He was sovereign in salvation. He gives life to whom He pleases. And that He is sovereign in resurrection. He will resurrect all men, the just and the unjust, to an eternal body and to eternity. And some men to everlasting shame and some men to everlasting life. He claimed to be equal with the Father in John chapter 5. And then when we get into John chapter 6, we see the deity of Christ and the work of the Trinity and the relationship of the members of the Trinity to each other in reference to redemption and salvation. Because now chapter 6 takes what was sort of prefigured in chapter 5, this Trinitarian relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit, and now applies this to the roles of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in our redemption, our salvation. Because now it is salvation that is in view in chapter 6. And now we get a glimpse at what did the Father do for our salvation, what did the Son do for our salvation, and what did the Holy, does the Holy Spirit do in our salvation? Now the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John comes in later on, chapters 13 and following, where we get a lot of teaching about the Holy Spirit. The earlier chapters have to deal with the person of Christ and His role and His relationship with the Father in our salvation. You ever wonder why the Trinity is not as clear in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament? It's there, but it's not as clear. It's not as unpacked and unfolded. You ever wonder why that's the case? It is because in the Old Testament, the, the, the gospel of salvation or God's redemptive plan it was in seed form, it was there, it was able to be discerned, just like the doctrine of the Trinity. But in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, we have the full manifestation of the redemptive plan of God culminating in the Son coming and taking upon Himself flesh and dying on a cross and rising again. So the New Testament is the culmination of the entire redemptive plan of God. And when you get the full revelation of God's revelation concerning redemption, that is when the roles and the persons of the Trinity come into their clearest focus. Because the New Testament is so salvific, such an exposition of God's redemption, that is when we see the Trinity at its finest. So salvation, the redemptive plan of God, was there in the Old Testament. You could see it, just like the Trinity. But in the New Testament, when you get the full unfolding of this magnificent plan of redemption, that's when you also see in magnificent glory the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ, the deity of the Holy Spirit. Because in no way ever is the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity as clear as when you are talking about the roles of each person in salvation. In the New Testament, we find out that the Father planned our salvation in eternity past. The Son procured our salvation or purchased our salvation in time. And the Holy Spirit now applies that salvation that the Father planned, that the Son purchased, he now applies it to those who are His. And so you see all three of these persons and their role in our salvation. We've seen it in John 6, beginning in verse 37, that the Father in love, quick review, the Father in love gave a people to His Son. The Son, in love for the Father and in love for those people whom the Father loved, pledged to receive all that the Father gave to Him. And not only to receive them, but to protect them, to secure them, to give them eternal life, and to raise all of them up on the last day so that none of them are lost. That was the eternal covenant of redemption. Those who the Father gave will come to the Son. Those who come to the Son will believe. They will behold the Son. They will receive eternal life. They will be raised up. And all of them will come because they are drawn. 
And without that work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how many of us would be saved? None of us would be saved. Because no man can come to the fa- Jesus unless the Father who sent him draws him. No man has the ability. That's verse 44. No man is able. A sinner can no more come to Christ for salvation than a corpse can run a marathon. Because both of them lack the ability to do the thing in question. So it is the plan and purpose of God. It is the role of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to plan something, to procure something, and then to apply it. And without those actions of the Trinity, the human response would never happen. With those actions of the Trinity, the human response is guaranteed because God has planned it, He has purchased it, and then He sovereignly applies it. That is the teaching of John chapter 6. Now we come to verse 45. We come to verse 45. And we want to, we're going to dive in at verse 45, and I want you to know and keep in mind that verse 45 is not a different subject than verse 44. Verse 45 explains verse 44. So in verse 44, no one can, no one has the ability to come to the Son unless the Father who sent the Son draws that sinner to the Son. Man is without ability. So God must do the drawing. God must do a work in the heart. And all of those whom the Father draws to the Son will come to the Son, and all of them will be raised up on the last day. That's verse 44. Now verse 45 explains verse 44 in other language. Look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, verse 46, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Now we're focusing on verse 45 today. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. And Jesus quotes the prophets. There's something majestic about the Lord Jesus quoting the Old Testament. Anytime I read it, I'm, I'm sort of, I sort of stand in awe of it, and I appreciate it, and I love it. I love to see the one who is the Word incarnate quoting the Old Testament text. And there's something majestic about that because it, it gives us a view or a glimpse into Jesus' perspective on the Old Testament Scriptures. Time and time again, Jesus would simply say, it is written. And see, that settles the argument. If it is written, that's it. There is no more discussion. There's nothing else that needs to be said. If God has said it, now ironically, Jesus was is God, and as God, and as the eternal God, had a role in authoring the Old Testament text. And as the Son of God incarnate, he would quote from the Old Testament and simply say, it is written. Or have you not read? Or do you search the Scriptures and yet you do not know? Or did not Moses say? Did not Isaiah say? Did not he who made them uh, man and wife say? And he would quote the Old Testament text. Jesus all the time quoted the Old Testament. Now here's what's majestic about it. Not only does it give us some idea as to the authority of the Old Testament text, that God would simply quote them as the thing that settled the argument, but that, as Spurgeon rightly notes, of all of the people in the world that could have spoken on their own authority and not quoted a single Old Testament passage, who would it have been? Jesus. Sometimes he did that. He would simply say, I am saying unto you, and that should have been enough. But that one who had the authority to simply speak on his own authority would also say, it is written. The Scriptures say this, and this is truth. And he would point to the Old Testament text. Now Jesus quotes the Old Testament prophets, and here's the reason for it. Here's why he quotes the prophets. It is to demonstrate that all he has said about human inability and divine sovereignty and the role of the Father in drawing sinners to himself is not something new that he has pulled out of the air. It is something that is consistent with the Old Testament texts. It is something spoken of in the prophets. And Jesus is simply saying to them, it shouldn't strike you as odd that I would say that no man has the ability to come to God, but that God must draw them. Is it not written in the prophets? And he quotes the prophets. 
That's his way of saying, what I have said to you from verse 37 down through verse 44 should not strike you as surprising. You should have been able to deduce this from reading the Old Testament prophets. Is that not what Paul does in Romans chapter 3 when in discussing the depravity of man and the total inability of man to please God? He goes back into the Old Testament and he quotes from the Psalms and from the prophets and he gives that long quotation of, I don't know, eight or nine different Old Testament texts building his case. You could have read the prophets and you could have read the Psalms and you could have read the law and walked away and said, you know what? We cannot do this. We are unable because sin has so ravaged the human condition and so ravaged the human heart that it has rendered us unable to obey the law of God and to fulfill the law of God. They should have been able to discern that, but they didn't. And they should have also been able to discern from the prophets that in order for anybody to come, they must be drawn. That's why Jesus quotes the prophets. But you'll notice, he just says, is it not written in the prophets? Or the prophets wrote, verse 44, 45, it's written in the prophets. He doesn't quote Isaiah. Do you notice that he doesn't name a prophet? He doesn't say as Isaiah wrote, or as Jeremiah wrote, or as Hosea said, or as Moses wrote. He doesn't say that. In fact, on closer examination, and this is curious, it is difficult to nail down which exact text Jesus is referring to, because you can go back through the prophets. In fact, you can go back through the whole Old Testament, and you're not going to read that exact quotation anywhere. So it is left for us to sort of deduce what Jesus is referring to and what passage he is speaking about because there is no exact quotation. And here's what Jesus was doing. He wasn't misquoting the prophets because he misunderstood them or because he didn't know exactly what they said. There's a certain thing that Jesus is doing, and other New Testament writers will do this on occasion. They will quote a large chunk of Scripture, maybe written by more than one individual, and they will refer to that group of writings, and they then say, is it not written, and then sort of roughly quote or paraphrase the teachings of that section of Scripture. And the goal there was not to quote any individual author verbatim word for word, but to simply summarize that teaching and say it is written in this text of Scripture and then to summarize that teaching and quote it as if it's the Old Testament text saying that. That's all Jesus is doing. He doesn't mean in particular Isaiah or Jeremiah and maybe anybody in particular, but I think we can deduce that he has a couple of passages that are very close to what he is aiming at. Those two passages, there are two passages which strike very close to the quotation, but they're not exact. And I think Jesus has these two in mind. Maybe others, but certainly these two. Isaiah 54, verse 13, and Jeremiah 31, verse 34. Isaiah 54 and Jeremiah 31 are the two passages. Now, since John, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit thought it was appropriate to quote those passages, I'm going to ask you to turn back to those passages. I want you to look at both of them. And we're going to see the similarities in the context between John 6 and those two passages. Isaiah chapter 54. Let's go to Isaiah 54 first. And keep your finger in John 6 because we're going to be turning back there. Isaiah 54. Now, when I gave you the reference Isaiah 54, some of you here might have said Isaiah 54. That's right after Isaiah 53. Right? 50, 51, 52, 53, 54. It certainly is. It's right after Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 I'm familiar with. Right? Is Isaiah 53 a familiar passage? He himself bore our griefs. He was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Right? God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the suffering servant passage, Isaiah 53. I want you to go back and catch the context because Isaiah 53, one of the things, let me back up just a second. One of the things that Jesus does in, and John does in John 6 by quoting that passage of the Scripture is to call our attention not back to just the phrase, but the entire context. See, we are intended with a citation from Scripture to keep in mind the entire context of what he is quoting. 
Jesus' reference to Isaiah 53, or summarizing the teaching of Isaiah 54, is to call back to our mind all of the teaching from 50, actually probably chapter 48 all the way through 54. That is the suffering servant passages of Scripture that describe the servant of God coming and bearing the sins of his people. So in Isaiah 53... We read, for instance, in verse 4, Our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions, verse 5. He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. What is Isaiah 53 prophesying? It is prophesying the coming of this one who was the servant of God, who would come and be stricken, smitten of God, die and be afflicted in the place of other people's sins. And a Jew should have been able to read Isaiah 53 and say, this Messiah, this suffering servant is going to come and he is going to bear the sins of God's people. And the sins of God's people will be laid on him instead of us. And because they will be laid on him, we can be counted as righteous. If God punishes him for our sins, then he can forgive us. Look at verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As the result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Wow, I can be justified by Him because of what He did in place of me. Because He was stricken for me, I can be justified. I can be made righteous. That's the Gospel. Isaiah 53, verse 10 or 12. Therefore I will allot Him a portion with the great, and He will divide the booty with the strong. Because He poured out Himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet He Himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now what's the appropriate response to that news? Verse 54. Shout for joy, O barren one! 54 verse 1. Shout for joy after reading that in Isaiah 53 and hearing that our sins will be placed on somebody else so that we can be justified. The only appropriate response is to shout for joy. Say hallelujah. What a Savior. What a God. And then chapter 54 goes on to explain all of the blessings that will come to those whose sins have been placed on Christ. All of these blessings. One of those blessings is verse 13. All your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. Chapter 54 is a, a recounting of all of the blessings that would come to God's people because of the work of this suffering servant who would bear their sin. So we can rejoice. And we will find that we will not be put to shame, verse 4. And the whole chapter is a list of these blessings. One of the blessings that comes to God's people because of what Christ has done is verse 13. They will be taught of God. Now that's the phrase that Jesus is quoting in John chapter 6. Now, is there a similarity between the context of John 6 and the context of Isaiah 54 and 53? There most certainly is, because with your finger back in chapter 6, if you look down a little bit later in the passage, some of the next verses we're going to be looking at, verse 50, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What's being described in John 6? The bread of life coming down to give his life. For his people to die in their place. And in the very context, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 53, which speaks of the suffering servant coming down to die in the place of his people and to give them life. It's a very similar context, and Jesus is quoting from that in John 6. The second quotation is Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. Flip over there. This is a little less clear, but probably the next clearest allusion. Jeremiah 31. 
verse 34. And when I said the reference Jeremiah 31, you thought to yourself, hey, that's right after Jeremiah 30. Right? And what's in Jeremiah chapter 30? I can't remember because it's not as significant as Isaiah 53 was to 54. Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 34, They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And do you see the illusion there? They will no longer teach each one his neighbor in order that they might know the Lord. There will come a time when God will teach them directly so that they might know Him and that He might forgive their sins and they will remember their iniquities no more. That's a reference to the teaching. Now, Isaiah 31 is a significant passage. I hope you know this as well. Isaiah 31 is the passage that deals with the New Covenant. In fact, if you go back to verse 31 of chapter 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that took them out of the hand by bringing them to the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. Now the prediction is of the new covenant. And God is saying, I'm going to make a new covenant, and I'm going to forgive their iniquity, and part of that new covenant, I am going to teach them so that they might know me, and so that I might forgive their sins, and so that they might be my people. Now, as the context of the new covenant, which was ratified by blood, the blood of the only begotten Son of God, is that new covenant context similar to John chapter 6 context? It certainly is, and for the same reason. Jesus is speaking about giving His flesh and His blood for the life of His people, for the life of the world. He's going to do that. He's going to offer a sacrifice, John chapter 6, in order that He would forgive their sins and justify them. And that's the same context as Jeremiah 31, and the same context as Isaiah 53 and 54. Jesus has in mind this death that He's going to die in order to justify the many. In Isaiah 53, we find out the means by which the new covenant can forgive sins. Because all of the sins of those under the new covenant have been placed upon the Son, so that He can justify all those for whom He has died. That's the new covenant. And in John chapter 6, it is the bread of life who comes down and gives life to the world by offering His flesh and ratifying that covenant with His blood. It's the same context. And so in the context of the new covenant, Jesus is in John chapter 6, quoting a passage that deals with His suffering and His death, where the blessings of that suffering and death would come. One of the blessings would be He would teach His people. And He's quoting Jeremiah chapter 31, the blessings of the new covenant, where one of the blessings of that new covenant is He would teach His people. They will learn directly from God. Those are the two passages that I think Jesus has in mind when he quotes the prophets and sums up the teaching of Isaiah and Jeremiah in John chapter 6. Now turn back to John chapter 6. And looking at verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now how is it that we end up coming to the Son? I challenged you last week at the end of last week's message. Think back through in your own life and in your own mind the steps that God brought you through to bring you to His Son. The steps that God ordained for you to walk in them. And you thought you were going this direction and and lo and behold you landed right at the cross. And God brought you there by His sovereignty, by His providence, by His goodness, by His grace, by His predestining grace. God did that. How is it that we are drawn or taught by God? It is by, uh, God draws us to His Son, not so much by persuasion, but listen, by instruction. We will be taught of God. They will all be taught of God. Who is the all referring to in the context? I think the same all that is mentioned in verse 37, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. All of them I will keep, I will lose none of them. All of them will believe, all of them will behold, all of them will have eternal life, all of them will be raised up. It's the same all all the way through the passage. 
And this all is a reference to this group of people given by the Father to the Son. They will all, all of those given by the Father to the Son, will be taught of God. So what does God teach us and how does God teach us? Spurgeon described this, and this is a key point. The way in which God draws men to Christ is not merely by persuasion, but by instruction. The Father does not draw us to Christ by a force which is contrary to our nature and will. We are not sticks and stones, and He does not treat us as if we were. We are rational, responsible, free agents, and He deals with us as such, never snapping even the finest strings in the instrument of human nature as far as it is human nature. So when He draws men, He draws them by teaching them. How does God draw men to the Son? How does the Father do this? By teaching them. Spurgeon says we're not sticks and stones, so He doesn't draw us in contrary to our nature. And by this, what He means is this. If I pull this pulpit, is the pulpit doing anything that it has the nature to do? Is it moving on its own? It's not. Now, I can move it wherever I want in contrary to its nature, but I can't stand over here and coerce the pulpit to come my way, can I? When God draws us, He draws us not in contradiction to our nature. He draws it in a certain way by teaching us, by instructing us. And when God changes our mind, He changes our will and our affections. Let me give you an illustration. About four years ago, I had a politician who came into my office who was running for a state a state office, a state senator. And he wanted to discuss something that was kind of somewhat connected to his running and somebody he was running against. And I'd never met this guy before in my life. And I didn't know his name. He called me up and asked for an appointment. I gave him an appointment. I sat down and talked with him for about 30 minutes. And during that 30 minutes, we got on the subject of abortion. He gave me his perspective on abortion. It was an inconsistent pro-life position. So over the course of the next 30 minutes, we sat there and had a very nice conversation about the subject of pro-life and abortion. And at the end of that, he said to me, you know what, you have really given me a lot to think about. I'm going to go consider these things, and um, and you you've really have given me a lot to think about. I said, great. So he left. I'll never hear from the guy again. Two weeks later, he called me up and said, I want you to know. He said, do you remember me? He came and sat down. I said, oh, yeah, I remember you. He said, I want you to know that you have changed my mind on the subject of abortion, and I have changed my platform, I have changed my literature, I have changed my website, and from now on, I'm going to hold this position on it because you gave me those things to think about, and I've considered them, and now I've changed my mind. So I have a totally different position. Thank you for taking the time to do that. That made my month. made my year. Now, was that politician a mind-numbed robot who was simply doing my will? I wish. But he wasn't. No, all I did was share truth with him. It changed his mind. And in changing his mind, it changed his affections. It changed his will. It changed his direction. That is how the Father draws us. He teaches us. What does the Father teach us? He teaches us about our sins so that we see ourselves in the light of truth. We see ourselves as lawbreakers, not as lawkeepers. He shows us just how wretched we are, just how unable we are. He shows us just how hopeless we are, how under condemnation and judgment we are. The Father teaches us all of those things. And then He teaches us about sin and righteousness and judgment to come. And He teaches us about how it is that we can find a remedy for our sin in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He teaches us about His Son and He has to instruct us that His Son is a sufficient Savior to bear my sins. And that because of what He did on the cross, because He poured Himself out unto grief and unto death, I can be justified and I can stand as righteous. I have to understand all of that. And then the Father has to teach us about what our response should be. That it is repentance and faith that appropriates the remedy that He has provided for myself. And He teaches us all of these things. And everything the Father teaches us is intended to make us sick of ourselves and fond of Christ. So that we reach a point where we say... I can't do anything but this. I have to do this. I have to believe. I would be a fool to reject this. 
I would be a hideous fool to reject this. To reject this would be the stupidest thing I have ever done in my life. And we feel at the moment of our salvation that this is the one thing we have to do. Because to not do this would be to lose everything. And to do this one thing would be to gain everything. How does the Father change our hearts and our minds like that? He teaches us. He instructs us. Individually, through all of these means, in one way or another, in one order or another, in one capacity or another, the Father taught you all of those things before you ever came to His Son. I'm looking forward to the day in heaven when I can find out. Actually, actually, I'm looking forward to finding out two things. Number one, the day I got saved, because I don't know when that was. I remember where it was at. I remember it was during the summer. I don't even remember what year it was. And by the providence of God, that information was not recorded by me, a stupid fool. I should have wrote that down. I mean, I remember the day I was born. Well, I don't remember it, but I mean, I take note of the day I was born. I remember the day all my children were born. I take note of that, my anniversary, everything that was of significance to me except for that one thing. It's the one day I don't know. But by the providence of God, I'm looking forward to finding that out. Second thing I'm looking forward to finding out, because I think this is going to be just a matter of curiosity for me. How many times did I hear the gospel before I finally responded to it? I'm looking forward to finding that out. Because from the ages of 8 to 14, I attended every VBS and Sunday school that I could find. Now, not because I was seeking God in any of that. I can tell you, before I came to Christ, I never attended a single religious service with a pure motive. All of my motives were unpure and corrupt. Trust me, it was for candy, it was for girls, it was for anything under the sun but Jesus. It was an opportunity to get something for free. That's why I went. But I attended every VBS, and I know at every VBS that I went to, I heard the gospel. I attended Sunday school in this church, Kootenai Community Church, in that old building for years, and I know I heard the gospel. And I lived next door to Christians who I know told me the gospel. And then I went to camp, and I sat there at camp, and I heard the gospel in morning chapel, in the afternoon chapel, every day all the way through to the last day of camp, and I know I heard the gospel. I sang the gospel. I memorized verses to get prizes that contained the gospel. I knew the gospel. I had heard the gospel. And then the last evening of camp, I heard the gospel. And I said, who has been hiding this from me? Why did I not hear this before? Who, who, who has been keeping this gem from me for all of these years and has not told me this? Listen, friends, I know I was told. <laughs> I was told, I can't even wait to find out how many times I was told. But what was God doing during all of those things? He was teaching me. He had to teach me about sin and righteousness and judgment to come and His Son and His Word and His Gospel and His glory and the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ, and repentance, and faith, and my sin, and my condemnation. And he did all of that to bring me to the point where having been taught from him that final night of camp, I graduated that course because I finally got what the Father had been teaching me. But during that long period of time, for however long it was, the Father was teaching me to bring me to his Son. They will all be taught of God. And listen, God is the teacher in this drawing. God is the teacher You can get the most articulate, best preacher in all of the world and have them stand up here and present the gospel in all of its pure glory to a room full of unbelievers. And it will do absolutely nothing to them unless God, by His grace, gifts His Spirit and attends the preaching of the gospel with the power of His Spirit so that it is not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You can have them memorize all of the Scripture in the world and it will be useless to them if God by His Spirit does not by His grace take that Word and bring it to bear upon the human heart and change the affection and instruct them in it. And no book and no course and no gimmick and no service and no stage show and no message and no preacher can do any of that to a sinner. All of that is useless unless God by His Spirit 
does the drawing, and is doing the teaching in order to bring them to faith in Christ. No one can come unless the Father who sent him draws him. As the prophets said, they will all be taught of God. God himself will do the drawing. God himself will do the teaching. He, God the Holy Spirit, will attend his word with his power so that they will come. Now that's not to diss any of the means. Because I, I heard the gospel in vacation Bible school and I heard it at camp and I heard it through messages in Sunday school and from neighbors. I heard it through a, a, probably two dozen different means that I heard the gospel and I was exposed to it. But God was using all of those means. But all of those means communicated one central truth. The gospel message and the word of God, the truth that's in the word of God. That's what the means communicated so that I would understand those things and through those things I would come to faith in Christ because of my understanding. Once he changed my mind, and I was convinced of what is true, I acted in response to what I knew was true because he gave me the ability to act in response to what I was convinced with every fiber of my being was true truth beyond any shadow of a doubt. That is how the Father draws us. Not like this. Though I wouldn't care if he did that as long as I get salvation. But he taught us, but he drew us by teaching us so that we would understand the truth. And all we're describing here is the opening of spiritually blind eyes, the loosening of spiritually deaf ears, the enlightening of the darkened intellect, so that we see, we behold, we hear, our eyes are open, and we say, who has been hiding this from me? And then how do you get it all along? Father's been teaching you to the point, you finally got it. Aren't you glad you finally got it? Man, you were thick in the head. Maybe I was thick in the head. Now what would you do, what would you make of somebody who said, you know what, in our evangelism, and I'll just let you, I'll, I'll let you, cash this out in your own mind. What do you make of a Christian leader or somebody in spiritual leadership or a pastor who says, we need to hide the, the, the deep doctrines of the Word of God from people? Because if you talk to them about sin and righteousness and atonement and propitiation and the death of Christ and all those things, you hide those things from people because you don't want to offend people with these things. You just want to just keep it simple. Just keep it Jesus. Just give them Jesus because in just giving them Jesus, they will come. We, we want to keep it as easy as we possibly can. You know the irony behind that? If you want to keep a sinner locked in darkness, hide the light of truth. If you want to be an instrument by which God draws sinners to Himself, ratchet up the exposure to truth and turn on the lights of truth. What are you afraid of? That the non-elect won't come? What? That the non-elect will come? Are you afraid that the elect won't come if you turn the lights on? You ratchet up exposure to the truth so that the sheep hear His voice. And they can come, and they can be drawn. And it's through that truth that the Father brings those who are His to Himself. Now I ask you the question, who is taught by God? Who is taught by God? That's answered in verse 45. It's the end of the verse. Wow, my time is gone. Verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now just stop for a second and just let that sink into your head. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Who comes to the Son? Some of those who have been taught by God or all of those who have been taught by God? Is God teaching all men equally the same thing? Is He spreading out His peanut butter grace over all of humanity like we talked about last week, provenient grace, to sort of spread it out and counteract the effects of the fall and just bring us all up to a neutral position? Is that what God is doing? Is God teaching all men equally in this way that's mentioned here? If all men are taught, all men will come to the Son. That's verse 45. Everyone who is taught comes to the Son. Not some of those who are taught. Not most of those who are taught. All of those who are taught. 
Is it possible for someone to be taught of God and to eventually not lay hold of salvation and be raised up and be given eternal life? Is it possible? Verse 45, you answer it. It's impossible. The one who is taught of God will come. The every one of verse 45 is the all of verse 37. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. Why will they come to me? Because they will all be taught of God, just as the prophet said. And everyone in this group who is taught of God will come to the Son without fail. Not one will be lost. Why? Because the Father is not teaching and drawing men salvifically to His Son just to short-circuit it and cut it off at the last minute and give them an untimely death and plunge them into eternal hell. That is not the grace of God in Christ. All that the Father gives me will come because the Father will draw them and He will draw them by teaching them so that everyone who is taught of God comes to me. And who is the one who comes to the Son? The one who believes and beholds and receives eternal life and is raised up on the last day. Those are the ones who are taught of God. It's not everyone. Now, some people really bristle at this and they say, that's not fair that God would do something for one person that He wouldn't do for another. That's not fair. Well, you're right, it's not fair. But grace that is given to one person does not obligate the grace of God for every person, does it? God made a covenant with David. Is he obligated to make the same covenant and make the same promises to me? Is God not free to determine how he will treat his creatures for his own glory and for their own good? Is he not free to do that? Is God not free to dispense his grace however he might to any individual in any situation that he might and to withhold grace for whatever his purposes might be? Is God not free to do that? Is the only one in the world who has free will man? Or is God not free? To do what God would do. To be God. And to dispense His grace according to His own own eternal pleasures and His own eternal purposes for His own eternal means and for His glory and for the good of His creatures. God is free to do all of that. God is the free one. And grace that is obligated is not grace. It's debt. Grace is never obligated. And God does not treat us all fairly. And God is not obligated to treat us all fairly. This whole passage is describing something that God does for some that He does not do for all. God did not give all of humanity to His Son. Some. Jesus in John 10, John 8, John 17 describes that some. And he limits it. It's not all of humanity. It's not all of humanity who come to the Son. It's not all of humanity who are drawn. It's not all of humanity that are taught. It's not all of humanity that believe. It's not all of humanity that behold. It's not all of humanity that get eternal life. And it's not all of humanity that are raised up on the last day to life. And it's not all of humanity that are received by the Son and secured by the Son and kept by the Son so that he loses none. It's a small group. Everything in this passage describes those who believe. Not, verse 36, those who saw him and would not believe. All the blessings and everything described in verse 37 and following describes those who believe. Now I ask you this question, with this I close. Passages like this are a challenge to our theology. And here's how they challenge our theology. I mean, they don't, don't so much challenge my theology because I came to terms with this a long time ago. But I will tell you, this was like a cheese grater to my theology for many years until I finally submitted to what is said here. It challenges our theology because we don't like to trust and accept the things that Jesus said here. And we're always trying to read passages like this in a way that will allow us to keep our traditions, what we have been taught in other churches, or what we have been taught as a child, or what we have always believed intact. Here's what we need to do. We need to stop reading Scripture and trying to find a way around the obvious teaching and instead read Scripture and say, I will jettison anything in my thinking that does not comport with the text of Scripture so that this is king and I submit to this, whether I understand it or not, whether I like it or not, whether it is distasteful to me or not, is irrelevant. So you have to ask yourself the question, am I able, 
with my theology to affirm everything that Jesus affirms in this passage of Scripture? Am I able, with my theology, to affirm everything Jesus teaches in this passage of Scripture? If the answer to that question is no, might I suggest the obvious, that you have a different theology of salvation than Jesus had? And might I recommend to you something that would be safe, and that would be to jettison your theology and adopt that of Jesus? He has authority to say what is true of God and men. John 6 might be distasteful to you, but friends, it is not unclear. It's a clear passage of Scripture. There can be no uncertainty as to what he is saying and what John is affirming. And it is true truth. Our time is up. We didn't get to verse 46 and 47, which sort of wraps up this issue of the drawing of God. Next week, Lord willing, we will look at verse 46 and 47, and then we're going to step back and we're going to take a look at this triune work of redemption in the salvation of sinners, the role of the Father, the role of the Son, and the role of the Holy Spirit, not just from this passage, but from other passages of Scripture. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for the work of you, our triune God, in securing and planning and saving us, planning our salvation and saving us. Thank you for what you have done in eternity past. Thank you for all of your works and your actions, for your initiative. Thank you that you sought seekers to worship you and that you pursued us, that you taught us, that you brought our hearts into submission to you and your spirit. Thank you for crushing the defiant human will and making us yield to you, which is the sweetest and most joyous yielding that we have ever experienced. Thank you for such a rich and gracious salvation which you provided in your Son. We stand in awe of your goodness and in awe of your majesty, and we worship you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.